Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. The reading, which can be found on page 1111, is from the Book of Acts, chapter 16, starting at verse 11. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day on to Neapolis. From there we travelled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned round and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight... Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, He drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, 
Don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others of his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his family were baptised. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, Release those men. The jailer told Paul, The magistrates have ordered that you and silence be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, They beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and encouraged them. Then they left. As we stand, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would enlighten us now as we turn to your word. Pray that he would show us what is written in it. Help us to take it to heart and apply it in our lives, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wonder what you think it takes to make a person change their minds about God these days. Perhaps it requires a great preacher of the sort that we've had visits from, uh, like, say, Billy Graham. Do you remember Billy Graham, who died this year? Um, I, um, I saw him when I was 12 years old. I was selling Billy Graham crusade songbooks at the Earl's Court Crusade of 1966. Um, some of you are old enough to have been there. Uh, I, may have, uh, I may have been the one who took your money from you. I'm not sure it's legal these days for a 12-year-old to do that, but that's what I did. Um, and um, he was a great preacher. I was fascinated by nipping in after I'd sold the songbooks into the crusade meeting. And then that moment came when people were invited forward and you wondered what was going to happen. And there were one or, one or two started to move and then the two turned into a trickle and then it became a flood of people going forward. It is said that 12 years earlier in the 1954 Haringey Crusade, which took place over three months, that two million people heard Billy Graham preach. Two million. One of my friends said it was the closest he had ever come to revival. 
Maybe that's what we need again, to get people to change their minds about God. Or perhaps we just need all everyday, ordinary Christians to be very active in telling uh, friends and people they encounter about Jesus Christ. The most remarkable story I heard was when I was interviewing for a job in the Church of England. Uh, I was doing the interviewing. I wasn't seeking a new job myself. And um, uh, I was interviewing uh, this person for a vicar's job, and he described how he'd become a Christian. And he said he'd actually been on his way to the Church of Scientology in East Grinstead when someone stopped to give him a lift. So he got in, um, and while he was being given a lift there, they told him the gospel. And as a result, he never made it. Uh, he became a Christian, and subsequently, though I you know, rush to say it's not inevitable, he became a vicar. Well, maybe that's what it takes to change people's minds, Christians who are active in passing on the gospel. Or perhaps it's something entirely different. Because what we're now going to do is look at this passage from Acts 16 and see there what it took for people to change their minds about God. And we're introduced to three people in particular, Lydia, the slave girl, and the Philippian jailer. And what we're going to discover as we go through it is that the first thing that happened was that God took the initiative. It started with God. So we're introduced to Lydia in verse 14. She's um, um, shown to us as a successful businesswoman uh, from Thyatira, a place famous for its dyes, for cloth, Purple dye in particular was ex uh, expensive, so she's a dealer in luxury goods. There's always money to be made in luxury goods, um, and she's probably uh, fairly wealthy. She's successful. She's clearly also a religious woman. She's a God-fearer, we're told. Maybe, uh, you know, what would we say the equivalent was today? You know, um, I remember my training incumbent talking about good-hearted Anglicans, Maybe that's what she was. I'm not trying to mock. I'm simply saying that here was a good, sincere, successful person. So that's the first person we're introduced to. Now, the second person is the polar opposite, the exact reverse, a slave girl. Uh, and, and she was enslaved in so many ways, wasn't she? She had no say in her own destiny, she was exploited by others. She didn't even have a will of her own because she was demon-possessed. She was someone who was comprehensively trapped. Now, you know, what would be the equivalent today? Um, I don't know that... Uh, well, we do have people who are trafficked, don't we? Uh, we do still have people who are enslaved, and if their passports are taken away and things like that, they can be comprehensively trapped, but people can be trapped in all sorts of ways. You can be trapped by addiction. You can be trapped by your personal circumstances. If, for example, you're deeply in debt, you can be trapped by the need to, to be 24 hours a day available to dependent relatives. All sorts of ways in which that can happen. So, uh, there's Lydia, there's complete opposite, somebody who's comprehensively trapped. And then there's the jailer. Now, th this man is probably really down to earth. 
The reason I say that is because this is the sort of job that an army veteran would do in those days. Philippi was a Roman colonia, the sort of place that people retired to. This chap's probably ex-army, got it getting a job in his retirement, doesn't require too much exertion, um, and uh, that's it. So he's, you know, down to earth, the sort of man who calls a spade a spade, doesn't really have much time for airy-fairy stuff, um, probably just does the official religious bits, but no more than that. So here are the three of them. And when Paul turns up in their lives, it's not him who is the first to take action. It's God. And the great thing is that we see God working in each of their lives. So whatever you're calling in life, whatever you're standing in society, wherever you come from, God is interested and takes the initiative. So what did he do? Well, verse 14 we're told that with Lydia, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention. Now, isn't that interesting? That was the initiative that God took. You see, she had probably, she, she was the sort of person who could probably sit through a service and, um, you know, just let it wash over them, really. But the Lord opened her heart. I remember a delightful man in my parish church when I was a vicar in Plymouth, used to march in to the service on Sunday mornings wearing his tweeds, tweed suit, march in, sit down, stand up, fully, completely ramrod straight, sing the hymns, sit down. When the sermon started, <laughs> firmly closed eyes. Then woke up for the hymns, marched out again with a quick word of greeting and an expression of desire that we don't sing choruses anymore. Um, and then, the Lord opened his eyes. He came on a Christianity Explored course. The Lord opened his eyes. Actually, in his case, literally. Because he, used, he, he still came into church wearing tweed suit. He still marched in. He still stood ramrod straight for the hymns. But when the sermon came, he was wide awake, totally engaged. He wanted to hear what God had to say. Now, sometimes that's, that does happen, doesn't it? You know, we can go along, everything running off our backs, but the Lord opens our hearts. Sometimes it just hits home, and we know he's spoken to us. Uh, well, then the slave girl? Well, even there God takes the initiative, because Paul commands the spirit who's in control of the slave girl, in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. Because only God can deliver her from this demonic possession. Only God can do it. So he was the one that took the initiative. And then in verse 26, well, what gets through to the jailer? It's an earthquake. An earthquake. Sometimes God does act in a dramatic way to get through to people, doesn't he? Um, I, 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 I think of... Uh, a person very much in my imagination, like this Philippian jailer in my last church, an ex-fireman who did practical jobs around the church for years but would never come to a service. Um, his wife was always praying for him, but he never, never seemed as though anything would change. And then he lost his job and had a heart attack and 
uh, he started asking himself some fundamental questions. And he saw the love being shown by Christians towards his family. And he said, I've got to look into this. And he did. I think of another man came to see me to have his passport signed because that's what vicars do. That's what they're useful for. Um, so he dropped in, asked if I'd signed his passport, which I'm very happy to do. Uh, while he was there, he said, um, he said to me, uh, well, you've probably noticed I don't, I don't really bother much with church. And I said, is that so? And, and, and he said, yes. He said, it's because I come from Northern Ireland. He said, I've seen, I've seen what uh, religion can do to people. Uh, you know, I'd never go there myself. So I just started mentioning to him that, that Christianity's claims really were based on the person of Jesus Christ more than just the behavior of those who claim to follow him. They're based on Jesus Christ who said he was the prince of peace and that therefore you know, the, the better approach should be to, to try to find out about Jesus uh, rather than anything else. And he said, well, well yeah, bears thinking about. You know, went off with his signed passport. Uh, I never expected to see him again. However, he came back to see me the next day and he said, I got home last night. He said, I, I was all alone in the house, nobody else there. I had this extraordinary feeling of peace. It just washed over me. He said, I, I've never experienced anything like it in my life. It was absolutely beautiful and stunning. And I don't know what was happening, but I didn't want it to stop. He said, but it did stop. And I've come back today to ask you to tell me what's going on. <laughs> so I told him about Jesus. So it starts with God. Now secondly as that story has just demonstrated, it focused on Christ. For each of these three, it focused on Christ. Now let's just have a look at the jailer because you get the impression from the story of the jailer that he doesn't know what's going on. But it's pretty terrifying, whatever it is. I mean, there are Paul and Silas. They've had their flesh laid bare and, and flogged, probably bleeding, so they are, in, they are in great pain, stiff. They are in an awkward position with their feet in stocks. It's the sort of thing that would keep you awake all night. And the Philippian jailer, what would he have been expecting in those circumstances? He would have been expecting prisoners to be cursing, calling out, complaining, crying, shouting, moaning. What does he get? Him singing and praise to God. What's going on? Then there's an earthquake. What's happening? And then, instead of making a run for it, the prisoners stay put and appear to be concerned for the jailer's welfare. Since when does this happen? His entire world is turning completely upside down. No wonder he doesn't know what's going on. There are forces at work he just doesn't understand. Now, some people leave it at that point, and they say, well, that's God to me. It's you know, an impersonal force. But when the Philippian jailer says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? 
Paul answers by saying, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And then our our passage tells us, they spoke the word of the Lord to him. You see, it all came down to Jesus. It's in Jesus that God reveals himself to us in terms we can understand. We may not know what's going on. There there may be circumstances in our life that have caused us to sit bolt upright and to try and take stock of what's happening. Things may have developed in our own personal circumstances which raise a big question to us about what we're doing and what's happening in our lives. And in order to make sense of this, we focus on Jesus. And as Jesus reveals God, what does he show to us? Well, he shows us God's character, his compassion for people, his love for people, his understanding of people's weakness, coupled with, of course, his refusal to compromise, his clarity on the need for repentance. We see his great patience, but we also see him standing firm. So when we talk about having a relationship with God, we know who we're talking about. We're talking about someone who loves us like Jesus Christ, who reaches out to us like Jesus Christ did, to everyone, irrespective of their circumstances, and who is patiently waiting for us to respond. So it started with God. It focused on Christ. Thirdly, it led to salvation. It led to salvation. Now, this is where I think the most surprising bit of this story comes. I mean, you may think the most surprising bit is the earthquake or whatever. I find the most surprising bit is verse 30. Because in verse 30, the jailer rushes in and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Isn't, don't you think that's an extraordinary question? I mean, here he is. He's he's just experienced his world being turned upside down. He's just sort of assumed that all the prisoners have bolted, taken their opportunity. He realizes he's going to have to pay with his life for what has happened. So rather than have some gruesome thing happen to him, he's about to take his own life. So his entire world has collapsed. He's just about to do that. And then he discovers that, oh, wonderfully, they're all still here. He doesn't have to do it after all. And they're, they're all saying, no, no, don't, don't do that. We're not going. You'd think he would be saying to himself, well, thank goodness for that. Oh, it's all over. It's all okay. Thank goodness it's sorted. But he doesn't. It seems as though he's gone a step further in his fear because he rushes in trembling. And instead of saying, thank you so much, for sorting out the situation. He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? From what? Well, there's only one answer, isn't there? What's he got to be saved from? He's got to be saved from the God who has just been doing all these things, turning his world upside down. That's who he's got to be saved from. He knows, because his life has been hanging by a thread, he knows that he's not ready to meet God. 
Now, in a very real way, most of us know that we're going to be accountable to God. Even if we're not Christians, people sort of have some innate sense of accountability. I remember Tony Benn. Do you remember that great Labour politician of the last century? Tony Benn um, used to keep a diary, and he, and he noted down all the things that happened every day. Um, and I, I remember hearing him being interviewed on Radio 4, and the interviewer asked him about this and asked him why he did it. And he said, well, I believe it's important to give account for your life. It's important to be accountable. And then the interviewer asked him an interesting question. He said, so to whom are you giving account? And Tony Benn said, I don't know. I don't know. He knew he had to, but he didn't know to whom he was giving account. One of my early experiences as a curate was being asked to go and pray with a man who had three weeks left to live. And he had asked to see me. Um, and uh, when I asked him uh, why he'd, he'd asked me particularly to come, since I'd never met him before, he said, I'm worried about what I did in the war and I'm scared of meeting God. He was brutally honest, wasn't he? Well, I was able to invite him to meet Jesus Christ. Um, and um, just as Paul spoke the word of the Lord to the jailer in verse 32, I hope I did the same for him, um, explaining about who Jesus was and is, perfectly man, perfectly God. He came out of God's love for us to save us from the judgment we all deserve. I don't know whether what this man did in the war was something that he deserved to feel guilty about or not. But whatever it was, I was able to show him that we are all of us, all of us rightly judged by God and only expecting that judgment. And yet Jesus Christ came to take on himself all the guilt, all the sin that we have committed he bore the consequences. And as he died, he experienced separation from God more terribly than we can imagine. Can you imagine the person who's, who's made the world being rejected by everything in the universe? Utter loneliness. No God, no friends. Utterly alone. He experiences God's judgment himself. And it all happened for our sake. He came out of his love for us to take our sins on himself, take the consequences, and then he rose from death to show that that great sacrifice had worked, to show that God accepted it, to show that nothing could conquer him as God. So when Paul says to the jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus, the jailer would have understood that all he had to do was put his trust in Christ and what he had done for him and then show that he trusted Christ by the way he lived. Because if you do trust Christ, if that's where you're putting your trust for your eternal salvation, well, it'll reveal itself in the way you live because you'll live his way rather than your way because you trust him. You trust he's got it right. And that's what we do. And that's what the Philippian jailer would have done. That's why he got baptised as a sign of obedience. So it led to salvation, and finally, it resulted in joy. Isn't it interesting how uh, Christians do love having meals with one another? And um, it started very early on in the church. So Lydia, 
as soon as, as soon as she'd discovered Christ, invited Paul and Silas to go to her house, and presumably that was for a good meal. And then the Philippian jailer, you know, they all go for a slap-up meal, and they're filled with joy, filled with joy. It's wonderful, isn't it, when you put all your trust in Jesus Christ. It does fill you with joy. You see, it didn't change Paul's circumstances. He still hurt from the flogging. He still had to face up to the magistrates and, and, and try and press home his rights under law. Um, he still had all the difficulties of life to contend with. But there was real joy, and there is real joy for us. Because when we trust Christ, all of our guilt is washed away. And we have hope that is certain for the future. And it's a hope not of you know, some wonderful place that we'll go, It's that wonderful hope that we will be close to Christ, the person who has given his life for us, who loves us so dearly. If you treasure relationships, there is no relationship closer than this one, and it will be yours forever. It's a cause of great joy. So what does it take to make people change their minds about God? It requires God taking the initiative. Maybe he's done that already in your life and you did at one stage ask those questions and if that's causing you to think now, then do turn to that notice sheet, that welcome sheet where it invites you to tick boxes and and just tick the box that says, I'm interested in becoming a Christian because people won't assume anything but they will help you explore uh, more about it. So do do that. Started with God, it focused on Christ. It led to salvation. And it was the cause of great joy. Don't you want that in your life? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for all that Jesus came to do for our sake. Heavenly Father, we pray that as you'd wonderfully take the initiative with us, that we would respond, that our our hearts would be opened to your message. Heavenly Father, if we've already turned to you, we pray that this message would encourage us to pray for our friends and neighbours, knowing that the initiative starts with you in their life. So Lord, please encourage us to pray for those for whom we'd love you to take the initiative. And Heavenly Father, help us to be people who point to Jesus Christ and who just love all that you have done for us uh, in saving us and who exhibit that in the joy that people are able to see in us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.